This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of my 2010 conversation with Dr. Charles Joyner about his book, Down by the Riverside, A South Carolina Slave Community. Today's episode is part of our continuing series of encores, celebrating the Journal at 21. With me in the studio today is my longtime friend, Charles Joyner, who is Burroughs Distinguished Professor Emeritus at Coastal Carolina University. He's a former president of the Southern Historical Association, the author of a wonderful book, which is the real reason why we're here, called Down by the Riverside. But he also did another book, which we've talked about in the past on the journal, and that is Shared Traditions, Southern History and Folk Culture. And more books, articles, essays, papers. Um, all I can say is I'm glad my daughter's own pine trees because if I had to publish his CV, it would, you know, <laughs> they'd get rich off of it. So first of all, Chaz, our listeners always want to know a little bit about who you are and who your folks are. So let's let's just talk a little bit about Chaz to start off with. I'm maybe not the best person to say because most of the early part of it I don't really remember. <laughs> but um, uh, I grew up mostly in Myrtle Beach. Uh, I was born in Spartanburg to a Mississippi father and an Ory County mother. Oh, okay. uh, we spent the war years in Mount Pleasant, just outside of Charleston, and came back to Ory County from my mother uh, at, at to Myrtle Beach uh, at the end of World War II. And uh, I've lived there. Uh, my family has lived there ever since. I was away during the time I was in college and graduate school, and for the first 15 or 20 years of, uh, of my career, so I went back in uh, 1981 to, to Coastal Carolina okay. University. Now, when you were at, if I remember rightly, when you were in Mount Pleasant, there was an older woman who had a tremendous influence on your life that was not your mother, a local historian. Patrona Royal McKeever, Miss Petey. Mm -hmm. She was very interested in the local culture, but she had a depth of interest and a breadth of resource to bring to it. She told me, I remember, we were talking about the Gullah Baskets, and she said, if you want to understand that Gullah culture, you have to know a lot about three continents, Africa, Europe, and America. And that stuck with me in ways that uh, was just an extra history lesson quite different from what I was learning out of the great adventures that I was learning in school about Daniel Boone and George Washington and men in white marble togas. And Virginia Day and all that other yeah. that we had that we had to, to memorize. Well, you you came to Carolina. Uh, well, I, I went to Presbyterian College excuse first. Me first. Undergraduate then, degree at Presbyterian, excuse me. Right, uh, and, and then came to Carolina uh, for, to graduate school and met three people who became... Uh, lifelong friends, historians, uh, Selden Smith. He was at Columbia College. Yeah. He began to teach at Columbia College while we were uh, sharing an apartment at 1015 Henderson Street. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still trying to get a historical marker there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dan Carter, mm -hmm. who became a prominent historian. From from Florence originally. Right. Uh, taught for many years at uh, Emory came to Carolina, came home to South Carolina, was a member of the history department here, and then retired. Correct. Okay. And uh, Hayes Mizell from Anderson is retired now from the Edna McConnell Clark Foundation and is back in Columbia. So um, I still get to see them often. We've been lifelong friends. Mm -hmm. All right. And, and then your first teaching job was in North Carolina at St. Andrews. No, at Pfeiffer College. At, oh, I didn't do, you went to Meisenheimer? Yes. Okay. okay. Uh, All right. Two years there. One year at the University of Tennessee at Martin, mm -hmm. and then to St. Andrews for 15 years. Okay. And then you came back home. Yeah. There but was it, a transitional stint as a visiting professor at uh, University of South Carolina, Columbia. Mm -hmm. And it, the, then I went back to St. Andrews to teach a summer school class and moved to Coastal Carolina, which was then Coastal Carolina College of uh, USC. Right. And what most people don't realize is you've got two PhDs. You got a PhD in history from the University of South Carolina. You got a PhD in folklore from the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. I began to get interested in folklore when I was here at the University of South Carolina. 
But as I began to work on what became down by the riverside, I realized Mm. I needed a better understanding of folklore than my self-directed reading could give me. And I used a a sabbatical from St. Andrews and a grant from the Social Science Research Council to finance uh, going back to graduate school at Penn. You have always had an interest in music. That predated your going to graduate school in folklore. I mean, folk song has always been a big part of your, your life. You're a talent, very talented musician, I know. I don't know whether I'm talented, but uh, it's one of those things that my mother got a piano when I was very young, and I learned to play it just by fooling around with it. And for some reason, if I can remember how a tune goes, my fingers will find it. In other words, you're, you're one of those very fortunate people who can play by ear. I guess you'd call it that. I know that my fingers will find the melody and will also find uh, the harmonies that are at least as good as the ones on the page. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so I fell in love with jazz at a very early age. Now, I do read music. I learned in the church choir. And then I learned when I was writing my first book to transcribe music. So I can go from the sound to the page more quickly than I can sight read from the page to the sound. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, learning a song is much easier if I hear it and then try to reproduce it. Well, between history and folklore, and of course, people say Down by the Riverside is a history book, but really it's multidisciplinary. And I think that's probably what attracted, I mean, yes, we've, we've been professional friends for a long time, but our interests have not just been strictly disciplinary. We, we have, we've crossed boundaries, both of us. Both of us have shared a great interest in Southern literature. Look, looking at your career, Myrtle Beach or Horry County, you're so grounded there. I mean, that's, I realize that down by the riverside is Georgetown County, but it slips so, I mean, you walk them on neck, you can, you're right next door. This has been such an integral part of your life. Is, is that how Down by the Riverside came about? I mean... I guess in a way it was. Uh, certainly, I realized something uh, universal about it. I, I used to make strong distinctions between Ori and Georgetown just because my ear said the accents are not the same. And I didn't really know why, but I could always tell a Georgetonian from an Oriite. Of course, Pat Nichols, have, Pat Nichols could tell us now why, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he's done a great job of, of trying to tell us why in that uh, book, recent book. Living in Mount Pleasant during the war years, I could most of the time tell the difference between someone from Mount Pleasant or Charleston and someone from Georgetown. But in the process of doing this book, I decided, well, it's the relative influence of Gullah on uh, the various combinations of uh, English, Scottish, and other European influences on the way we speak in South Carolina. And and that clarified for me at one specific point. I don't think I had actually thought of it, but it was an unusual place for it to happen. I was in Scotland with a group of my students recording ballad singers. We had a January term, winter term we called it. This is back at St. Andrews. And I had about a dozen students with me, and we were visiting a woman named Lucy Stewart in a town called Fetterangus, a village, actually. In fact, it was so small, there were houses just down one side of the street. One store at what they call the top of the street, not a television antenna in the whole town, and yet more great ballad singers and storytellers per square inch than there are ghosts in Pauly's Island. (laughs) And Miss Lucy was enjoying the attention. She was in her 70s and uh, didn't get this kind of attention. People coming this many miles to hear her sing. And so she was enjoying it, and when she would tire a little, she would tell a story. And midday, the postman came by. And yet this day, it wasn't the regular postman. So she stopped to talk with him a bit and asked where he was from, and he said he was from Stricken. And we knew that that was seven miles away because we'd filled our van with petrol there the day before. And when he said that, she said, I can't bite your tongue, your name, from these parts. (laughs) 
and she could recognize in his speech that he was from away, mm-hmm. even though away wasn't very far. And I thought, that's the same as Georgetown. This is a universal phenomenon. That sense of that opened a whole world to pour into down by the riverside if I could learn it. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of my 2010 conversation with Dr. Charles Joyner about his book, Down by the Riverside, A South Carolina Slave Community. Today's episode is part of our continuing series of encores, celebrating the Journal at 21. In in looking at at Down by the Riverside, not just the language, the stories, but you also had, we mentioned Miss Petey in uh, Mount Pleasant, but there was an older woman in Merle's Inlet. Genevieve Wilcox Chandler was crucial because in the 1930s, she had done interviews with living ex-slaves as part of the Federal Writers Project. And she was still living. She had just become an octogenarian, she told me, when I first met her in uh, 1969. And uh, we became friends for uh, the last decade of her life. I met her because of those interviews. I had heard of her before, but I discovered those interviews in the Library of Congress uh, while I was researching music for that first book uh, on folk song in South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I was just fascinated by these slave narratives, these slave interviews, and thought, well, if I can put them together with some other evidence, I might get a good article out of it. So I went and I made arrangements with her to come down and visit her. For her, it was like a reunion with her friends from a generation earlier when she had done those interviews, someone coming in to ask about Hager Brown and Ben O'Ree. So it was almost instant friendship. And with her daughter, Genevieve Chandler Peterkin, too, Sister Peterkin became a close friend and uh, has blossomed as an author herself uh, since then with her book, Heaven is a Beautiful Place. Well, I've read the slave narratives from South Carolina and other places, as have you. But there's something special about Miss Genevieve's interviews. She seems to have a real empathy with the people that she's talking to, and they seem to open up to her and tell their stories, whereas other interviewers, you get the idea that maybe the subjects were telling the interviewer what they thought she or he wanted to hear. Yeah, I agree. There are others in South Carolina who seem to have that kind of empathy. Uh, I thought Clotilde Martin and the Beaufort interviews mm-hmm. did did very well, too. But there's some that, uh, that clearly did not. Of course, you have to be on guard yourself not to read your own, if you know the interviewer, mm-hmm. not to read your own impressions of the interviewer into it. But I don't think I did. I mean, there were times when I could see in the interview uh, one of the former slaves beginning to open up, speaking guardedly at mm-hmm. first. And um, Ben O'Ree, for instance, said, well, I think they treated us well according to the conditions of the time. Mm-hmm. And that hedging at the end, and yet when he began to speak with her and found that she was participatory uh, in the conversation. He, he told her stories of atrocities that uh, some of the other interviewers could never have had an African-American reveal to them in other parts of the state. Well, you know, I, I think that's important and because here in the 21st century, you say, well, why did they have the chance to, to tell their stories? Well, when these interviews were being taken in the 1930s, the whole image of what the plantation world was was like uh, was had been cemented into place in the late 19th century, certainly, and with the films, even beginning with Birth of a Nation based on South Carolina, and of course you have the Gone with the Wind, you know, you've got the big house, and then you've got the happy slaves always singing, always, you know, always living in nice little neat cabins, and everything is just hunky-dory, and and they were so sad when slavery ended because then they were out on their own. And that's the kind of world that people were looking for. But that was not what was the real world. Well, by looking as carefully as she did, she made it possible for me to see 
a world that was not the mirror image of that opposite stereotype, but a world that was uh, broader and more complex and exceedingly interesting. Uh, I, th I think much more interesting than either one. Of, in fact, I've almost adopted it as a rule of thumb now. In, any scholar who takes on a project has some reason for taking it on. That is, we have some kind of preconceived expectations, at least, of what mm -hmm. we're going to find. And uh, honest scholars discard them, uh, you know, when they find evidence to the contrary. Um, but I'm almost used as a rule of thumb. If I haven't changed my mind at least twice, I need to keep researching. <laughs> well, just just remember my theme on the history. It didn't start out. I didn't I started out with one thing and finished with something else. Once I had all those notes spread out and began to put them together, it didn't quite work like you and I had thought it would. You know, when I look at the opening passage here in Down by the Riverside, and you and I have taken this trip on the Waccamaw River together, you really do seem to step back in time, mm -hmm. particularly if you've got somebody like, I think it's Captain Jack, who used to ta have the riverboat out of Georgetown. Oh, Sandy. Sandy. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And the way you, you open that, that narrative, you grab the reader and you bring the reader into the story. And as you say, it's a much more complex world. It was not just the big house and the quarters, the interaction, the cultural interaction. And um, it wasn't just the world the slaveholders made. This is also the world that the slaves made. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's pursue that angle a little bit. Well, I wanted to get as close as I thought I could to focusing on the slaves. I had one model before me as I was writing. William Styron had tried to get inside the mind of one slave and had failed to do so in ways that were pretty embarrassing to him. I think he failed, and I think he ultimately came to believe that he had failed. Um, many people, many critics uh, accused him of dishonesty in doing it. I don't think it was that. I thought it was a noble effort to try to do something that proved to be impossible. But anyway, it was a cautionary example to me, and I didn't want to try to assume the persona of the slaves as I wrote about it, but I wanted to basically, I guess, I assumed the persona of a visitor who came to to see what he could see, mm -hmm. which, in fact, I guess is what I was, mm -hmm. except I was having to view it through documents. Mm -hmm. But whenever I had the data to do it, I would try to reconstruct what a viewer would see and hear. And even um, in one case, when I was describing a walk through the slave village about supper time, the aromas from the cooking pots. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take that walk. Describe that for our listeners. Take that walk through the quarters at supper time. Well, it was a striking experience. Families would be in from the fields, uh, the ones who had worked in the fields and the ones who had worked at the many jobs on a plantation. A plantation was almost the equivalent of a town in the number of jobs that had to be done. But they were all finished with chores, or most of them were finished with chores by then, and had gathered at home. Uh, a lot of the cooking would be done outdoors if the weather was good. Mm -hmm. So um, cooking stews in pots. They, they cooked a thing in pots with rice uh, and seafood or rice and sausage or rice and chicken. I'm absolutely convinced in my mind is the origin of chicken bog. Mm -hmm. You could see the uh, cabins. People uh, could be sitting on porches talking, sharing information from the happenings of the day. Well, now, this being using the street as the community, this is very much an African tradition, is it not? I mean, the houses were for inclement weather, but life, with, the community life took place in the open together yes. as, a, yes. as a community, right? Yes. And to some extent, that uh, was a function of the climate, too. The climate enabled it. The African heritage suggested it. Mm -hmm. But whites tended to do a lot of that, too, mm. uh, to sit around on the, the porch. Mm. If they had somebody else doing the cooking, 
and we like picnics and barbecues and so forth too. And before air conditioning, at least when I was growing up in Mobile, in the summer afternoons and early evenings, particularly my grandparents would sit on the front porch and our house was set back from the street. But if neighbors were strolling, people would wave. Sometimes folks would come up and visit. This is, of course, pre-television mm-hmm. day. This is late 1940s, early early 19. Uh, and visit meant an active verb. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my sister and I go out and catch fireflies and, and listen to what the grown-ups had to say. I remember that, all of that, except probably I didn't listen to what the grown-ups had to say as well as I might have. <laughs> uh, not that I can remember, though, when they were putting in tobacco, um, then I started noticing because they would usually have kind of a, a, a supper. They didn't call it a party, but it amounted to a party. And um, at the tobacco barn, somebody had to stay awake all night mm-hmm. and keep an even heat in the thing. So they would try to help him out by sitting up with him for at least a good long time. They would send off the kids to bed. Uh, but they would tell stories and uh, sing. Somebody bring out a banjo or a fiddle and uh, would have a little music. And I really liked that. They'd always send me to bed too early, by my <laughs> standards anyway. Well, let, let's let's get back to the, the, the street and cooking because one of the things— and I honestly can't remember whether it's in this book or this is from a conversation we talk about how slaves were provisioned and what they were. Of course, rations were sometimes distributed by plantation owners, and you've got tremendous documentation on that. And this is what I found interesting. There was one slave family that you discussed where clearly the slave family was Muslim because they were not distrib- were not given pork in the distribution they were given beef instead. Well, one slave, one slave. And, and it, presumably the rest of his family too. Hmm. And that was the entry that Solomon is given a ration of beef instead of um, pork at hog killing time because he's a Mohammedan. Mm-hmm. I didn't find a lot of other information about the presence of Muslim slaves here, but The next book I did was a smaller book on slave life in coastal Georgia where I found evidence of Muslim slaves, just an abundance of evidence on Muslim slaves. Mm -hmm. Now, my son Wesley is doing a dissertation here at USC on Muslim slaves in the Old South Mm -hmm. and um, finding a lot more evidence Mm -hmm. than I was able to find, partly because there are lots of new documents Mm -hmm. available that weren't available to me. And it wasn't a question that I was looking into. Um, I didn't think there would be enough information to follow up on it when, it, when that one hit me in the face. But uh, also because he had some skills that I didn't have. He had studied with Ken Perkins here mm-hmm. uh, Islamic history, which I had not. And so he could recognize Islamic names and the names that just had some African connotation to me, but I didn't know what ethnic group those names came from and whether that ethnic group was then or now uh, Muslim. I know more about that now than I did, but Wesley knows more about that than I do. And of course, Mark Smith and his work on on Stono has has helped point the way that there were clearly a lot of slaves who had a Roman Catholic background when they came here. The idea that slaves came, that Africans came to South Carolina with only Bakanga or native religion, as people would say, would was wrong because they had, particularly if they came from Angola, they'd been ex, uh, exposed to, to Portuguese Catholic missionaries, mm-hmm. and then and then you, and then of course large. Uh, there were some in Senegal too, but they were in competition with Muslim missionaries mm-hmm. in ways that they were not in Congo. Mm-hmm. Wesley has identified at least families of Muslims on several plantations in that area, and several of the conspirators uh, in the Denmark Vesey insurrection. Though he's come to believe that that it's not on the whole a Muslim insurrection, Mm -hmm. but it does have a Muslim component in it. Just as as Mark Mark Smith is convinced that there's a definite Catholic component to the Mm -hmm. Stono. On Lady Day, that was the the day that they 
began the rebellion. But anyway, Mark's ability to situate in specific times is just remarkable, isn't it? Well, let's get back to down by the riverside and let's talk some more about the world the slaves helped make on the plantation. Obviously, you're talking about rice plantations. How long did it take to clear a rice field? There's usually an average of how long it takes to create an acre of rice field from those virgin swamps, isn't there? Oh, that original clearing process. Gosh, Walter, I don't know if I ever did uh, how long that process was, but most of those were cleared in the early 18th century. Mm-hmm. I'm not absolutely certain how long clearing them, but it was a, a torturous process. Uh, just preparing it in the spring was for planting was a pretty tough process that could last up to a month. One of the questions I like to ask my students when I talk about rice culture is how many people have actually walked through a rice field or an abandoned rice field today? And there are very few. There are not that many who have that experience. And then you ask them what those who have, and they say, oh, well, I sank up to my knee or I sank up mm-hmm. even deeper than that, depending upon how tall they are. And so you're really talking about putting the seat, you know, you're into the fields where you are knee-deep or more in the muck. I mean, it's uh, arduous, but it's also in that muck, you're going to find all sorts of critters that are still running around. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got moccasins, you've got alligators. As you know, that that, again, that trip up the the Waccamaw, and this was 10 years ago, the size of the alligators who were, had made the comeback from being an endangered species were uh, pretty big folks. Yeah. Now, at Planting time, at least in the time that I had the most data from, which was um, mid-19th century, I started getting pretty good evidence after 1830, but the fields were drained. Drained, okay. And uh, were left drained long enough that they didn't, that there was something to walk on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they could use a hoe to open a hole and cover it with a bare foot uh, when they put the seed in. So they weren't at any time of the year sinking in the muck. But uh, I've never walked through rice field. I've been through them in a shallow bottom boat mm-hmm. when uh, they were not over your head if I'd got out. But if you sank down into the muck, mm-hmm. it might, the water might have been over your head. Mm-hmm. April was the planting month. Mm-hmm. And it was very important to keep the level of the water just below the heads of the rising plant. Mm-hmm so that it didn't fall over. Mm-hmm. And um, then when it came time to harvest, you'd drain it. Then you'd have a big workforce that would converge on it, and they would be mm-hmm. undoubtedly working at least up to their ankles, if not more, in, in muck. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of my 2010 conversation with Dr. Charles Joyner about his book, Down by the Riverside, A South Carolina Slave Community. Today's episode is part of our continuing series of encores, celebrating the Journal at 21. Normally, on a rice plantation, labor was divided by tasks. Yes. And let's talk about the task system. Yeah, they normally tried to begin the day uh, at sunrise to get as much of it done before the day got too hot. Each slave would be assigned a particular task and a task was pretty clearly defined as a certain amount of land that they had to hoe or a certain amount of land that they had to plow or whatever their job was. And it was designed to be as much as a slave could do working industriously in eight hours, which should have them completing their task by early afternoon mm-hmm. or mid-afternoon, depending on you know, when sunrise was. But the slave had to work until that task was finished, whether they were fast or slow. Some slaves finished earlier than others, and planters who wrote about it thought that was a very good thing. That set an example to keep the others industrious, but for one reason or another, um, some slaves could not keep up, and some other slaves who were faster would help them So it was 
on the one hand, a labor system designed by the masters to foster an individual work ethic was also being modified by an older African communal work ethic of working together, which was very, very interesting to me how both things were working. The incentive is if an individual did finish early, he or she could basically then have free time. Yeah. There were so many things a slave needed to do that I'd describe it more often than free time as time to do their own work. Slaves were allowed to cultivate their own plantation gardens or raise animals, uh, pigs and things. And the master would often buy them or allow them to sell them at a community market. Uh, I don't think they did the community market very much that I know of in uh, All Saints Parish, but Mm -hmm. around the Rice Coast of uh, South Carolina, Georgia, there were some of those. Well, I mean, you, you see descriptions of the market in Charleston and the number of slaves there who are selling chickens or eggs or yeah. what have you. The, the masters have allowed them to come in and, and do that. And you say, aren't slaves have money? They did, did accumulate goods Yes, under this system. Uh, and the task system facilitated that by having more time to do your own work if you did the master's work mm-hmm. first. It's a labor management tool. It's mm-hmm. what it amounted to. Which is, which is different from the usual idea of the gang system, which worked, which used primarily on, uh, in the upcountry on the cotton plantations, growing up on cotton. What fascinates me the most about it, though, is the way in which it's emerging. In theory, the task system is entirely the master's creation, mm-hmm. uh, a labor system. Mm-hmm. But that thing of helping, um, imposing some communal elements on it, uh, which were, were part and parcel of the gang system, mm-hmm. um, was um, a mixing of the two, of the African traditions, work traditions, and European work traditions. And um, that's part of what I think of as the shared traditions. Mm-hmm. Don't think I wrote on that in the book, shared traditions. Mm-hmm. But Well, you know, and, and of course, among the shared traditions and the, co- the cultural contributions of the African-Americans you already talked about, some of the, what they're cooking, but the whole way we eat. You got it. You touched on the fact of the way South Carolinians talk. You know, our former professor, the late George Rogers, in his wonderful little book, Charleston and the Age of the Pinckneys, referred to the famed Charleston accent as high gullah. I call that. Which did not win him a lot of friends south abroad. And in a way, it was a little bit of a flip comment because the Charleston accent is quite different from the Georgetown accent, where Pat Nichols has demonstrated that whites reared in Georgetown County among uh, a black majority population, their intonation and the way they speak is very much West African. They speak English, but with a West African uh, lilt, if you will. That wonderful sing-song way that they speak. Well, it's uh, the South Abroad wannabes might be different from the South Abroad minyas because... um, it seems to me that the higher in the plantation aristocracy one was, the actual plantation bred whites who had part-time, mm-hmm. spent part-time south abroad, mm-hmm. uh, part-time on the Bottery, mm-hmm. um, would, they were more likely than others, than middle-class folk, to have that gullah inflection in their mm-hmm. speech. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense in which it was a badge of esteem mm-hmm. to, to, to be able to speak that way. You mentioned earlier the three continents you had, to un, you had to master Africa, Europe, and the United States in order to really understand South Carolina. I mean, there's no question about that, whether you're talking about the language, you're talking about the, the food we put on the table, visible things that the strong African traditions, Gullah, the sweet grass baskets, in the 19th century, there was the pottery, the colonial ware. It's everywhere. And not to, not to forget our music and the way we dance. Oh, yeah. And you, you had a lot of experience speaking of the way we dance with what is called beach music. Uh, growing up there in, in Myrtle Beach, and there was an, a nightclub outside of Myrtle Beach, uh, an African-American nightclub, where mm-hmm. you had the some... Paradise very, or Charlie's Place, as we called it. Yeah, some very interesting experiences. So let's let's go from 
down by the riverside to Chaz Joyner's experience with beach music? Well, when I was about 14, 15, 16 in there, in high school, I was trying to learn to shag. Never was really good at it, but I was a big fan of it. We didn't call it beach music then, but I knew exactly what people were talking about when they began to call it beach music. And when I say we didn't call it beach music, I think I'm speaking only of those of us who lived at Myrtle Beach. Mm-hmm. I'm not certain that the people who came from all over to uh, live and work in Myrtle Beach during the summer in order to shag, they may very well have called it beach music. I just didn't hear it called that. Well, I was thinking, being an undergraduate in the early 1960s and going to see friends at Pauley's or people going to Myrtle, working at Myrtle Beach in the summer, they were using that term beach music certainly by the 19, early 1960s. Yeah. Well, the music that they danced to at the beach, I mean, that's... Mm-hmm. That's what it was. Uh, you know, Myrtle Beach was not by then the big center of it as it had been in the 50s. In the 40s, there's evidence that something called the shag was being done at several beaches in North Carolina, as well as one, I think, in Virginia Beach even. Found something, there's a, there was an advertisement in the Georgetown Times in the 19 early 1930s, that King Oliver and his New Orleans jazz band were going to play at Pauly's Island to open the shag season. (laughs) Now, I don't know. I'm assuming that that was referring to a dance, (laughs) but I don't know and can't quite believe it was the dance that we knew as the shag quite because of the beat that his orchestra was a two-beat orchestra. Mm-hmm. Orchestra is probably a big word for it. He had two trumpets, unlike the usual, or two cornets, unlike the usual New Orleans combo, which had one. But um, otherwise, it was, you know, two cornets, a clarinet, a trombone, and a rhythm section. Mm-hmm. So the shag is um, is an older phenomenon, and, of course, it has other definitions in other places, too. How much the earlier incarnations of the shag, and it, like everything else in culture, things develop and change. Mm-hmm. It's, they're constantly growing. So the shag of your day, I think, was considerably more refined, more graceful. It had, I, could, I can look back and see early signs that that was the direction it was taking, of being more graceful than frenetic. Mm-hmm. as the jitterbug had been before it. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that the jitterbug and the Big Apple were influences on the shag. But I think it gelled in a particular incarnation in the 60s when North Myrtle Beach had become the big center of yeah, it. The pad. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was... One of your classmates at Davidson had a, a wonderful story that was supposed to be part of a book about North Myrtle Beach, a story about the pencil come into the pad. Mm-hmm. I think that was Bill Trotter. Now, I don't yeah. know if he ever did that book. Yeah. But. I, I'm, I'm trying. You, you've taken me down memory lane here about uh, because the bands that we used to get for fraternity weekends at Davidson for the after parties, all the good parties took place off campus at VFW huts or African-American nightclubs in Charlotte, which were running for the evening. And well, it was a Presbyterian college, after well, all. Well, that's, that's correct. Yes, the, the the dancing to always black musicians. You're talking about, it was not the jitterbug that we were taught in Miss Sloan's dance class, or in my case, Miss Irene Cole's dance class, which she didn't like to do, but she did because that was her concession to modernity. Uh, it was slower. It was more graceful. It wasn't like the UT or the chicken or all that other stuff that was going on in the 60s. It was... Uh, leisurely, if you will. I mean, mm-hmm. laid back. Yeah, graceful. And um, now the shag has become something taught in dance studios and contest music. And it's uh, it's still graceful, but it's um, very stylized and, uh, and very fast. Uh, it's becoming almost a professional dance rather than a, one for people who 
just like to get together and, and dance. Well, I, I, I know if you – in dances today, the younger people, when, when they play things like the old drifter standard, you know, under the boardwalk, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, the way us old folks over 60, for the listeners out there, the way we dance to that is quite different from the way the young people dance. You're right. They, they do much faster, and it is more frenetic. And in, in my youth now, we, we didn't, since we didn't call it beach music, you didn't have songs that were reflexive in that way that talked, the songs didn't talk about the beach. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk about under the boardwalk till the 60s mm-hmm. and, and bands like the Drifters. But uh, the Drifters had one of the best of the songs, and it's uh, one that still feels almost like my theme song to me. Uh, still got some sand in my shoes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Up on the Roof or 60-Minute Man, I mean, there are all sorts of little black book. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are all sorts of standards that uh, evoke images of really, it's more North Myrtle Beach, but you can go from Pauly's to North Myrtle Beach, all up and down the coast of young folks having a good time, whether it's the old pavilion at Pauly's, which no longer exists, and actually the Myrtle Beach Pavilion's gone now, isn't it? Yeah, the Myrtle Beach Pavilion is gone, leaving one song behind it. Um, Don't let them tear it down. (laughs) Um, Not a bad song, but it was not successful in thwarting the aims. But it's another example, though, of that process of the merging of the cultures of three places um, that began that we see, at least. I don't guess it was the beginning of the merging of cultures, which has probably been going on since the first two cultures ever met. But um, this uh, development of Gullah culture that was taking place here out of the merging of cultures from Europe and from Africa and the influence of the American environment and the various specific cultures that intersected here Mm continues to go on, and and, uh, beach music and the shag are are both a part of that. Mm -hmm. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program is an encore of my 2010 conversation with Dr. Charles Joyner about his book, Down by the Riverside, A South Carolina Slave Community. Today's episode is part of our continuing series of encores, celebrating the Journal at 21. Well, you know, you mentioned the environment— the sweetgrass baskets, the coiling tradition comes from Africa, but of course the materials, they use the materials they found here, which are different from the ones that they would, somewhat different from the ones they had they used in West Africa. And who makes the baskets has, has changed as well. Uh, didn't men used to do a lot of the basket coiling in West Africa? Yes. And and um, and, and uh, on the slave plantations too for a long time. Uh, but But now... Most of the almost exclusively women. Almost exclusively uh, women. Well, when I talked to you about being on the show, you said you had several projects in mind, Chaz. What are you working on now? Well, right now I'm uh, completing my essay for uh, revisions on a response to a, a session. There was a session at the Southern Historical Association meeting in November in Louisville on the 25 years of Down by the Riverside, focusing on the theme of creolization. Mm -hmm. um, Let's stop and explain creolization to our listeners. What do you mean by creolization? Well, it's a term linguistic scholars use to describe the um, new language emerging out of the convergence of two or more other languages. Uh, The classic case is Hawaiian. When two languages intersect in their only limited usage, it generally is called a, a second language develops. It's very simplified, called a pidgin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always a, a second language for each of the participants who don't understand each other's primary language. If that becomes a new language that everybody uses in, as their primary language, then they designate that as a a Creole language, and Gullah is an example of that. At some point, one is not absolutely certain, and it probably wasn't uniform, but it's a process that I believe started 
after slaves were enslaved, but on the African coast before they were ever on the slave ship. It's a process that would have continued on the slave ships and continued here. But in, a second, in the second generation, the young slaves born might have learned their parents' language, but their parents came from so many different African places. Mm-hmm. So the language they use is a new language. It's their native tongue, mm-hmm. and it becomes responsible for doing everything a language does, and it becomes really a Creole language. Okay. I mean, p- people, uh, one of the fascinating things to me about in, in studying 18th century South Carolina is that uh, besides the fact that there were 24 or 25 identifiable West African ethnicities and many more languages coming out of that, is that South Car- white South Carolinians knew the difference, mm-hmm. whereas Virginians just talked about African-born of Virginia. South Carolina and Carolinians knew whether somebody was from Angola or uh, Senegambia or uh, the Bight of uh, Benin or, or, or wherever. And, of course, one of the things they did on plantations, we know, is they mixed up slaves for a purpose. They didn't buy all Angolans, or they didn't buy all uh, Igbo, what have you. They brought them together so as to perhaps make less trouble for themselves. And that, of course, encouraged the development of Gullah as a language, did it? Well, there were specific uh, reasons for getting slaves from particular places. They did want slaves who came from rice-growing areas. Mm -hmm. So you have this Creole language that we know as Gullah, Mm Uh, more in the areas that were former rice-growing areas. Mm -hmm. And what I was doing down by the riverside is applying this linguistic breakthrough Mm -hmm. to culture in general as um, the cultures of those uh, same areas Mm -hmm. intersected with one another and modified one another and created essentially a new culture. And at some point described it as a process not unlike the way Uh, hydrogen and oxygen come together to form water. Mm -hmm. Water doesn't seem exactly very much like either of the original ones, but something new and significant in its own right. Well, in in that respect, couldn't you say that in terms of culture, not language, but certainly the European culture in South Carolina, given the diversity of the European population and throwing in the Native American and West African influences is, was our culture, certainly the culture of the Low Country, a Creole culture? Yes, it would have been a Creole culture even if there'd been no Africans here. Mm-hmm. It would have become a Creole culture. I think you could even call it a Creole culture if there had been no non-English speaking Europeans. The way the languages of uh, England and Scotland and, uh, and Ireland were used mm-hmm. here uh, were culturally different enough that if it wasn't a Creole language, it still could, could have been a, would have been a Creole culture. Mm-hmm. But that's hypothetical because we had all that mix. Well, I, I love to talk about the, the mix. We, we've already mentioned the, the 24 or 25 West African ethnicities. You've got at least nine different European uh, cultures represented. And you, you, you break those down. I mean, English came from New England the mother country, the, the English Caribbean, uh, the French are from Switzerland, from metropolitan France. And, you know, you keep breaking all those down. So it's really more than just nine. And you've got this uh, cultural gumbo, if you will, in Charleston. Uh, and again, going back to George Rogers, he said, if you walk the streets of 18th century Charleston, uh, it was a veritable babel of, of languages and experiences. Pat Nichols' book, uh has a wonderful opening paragraph of the language describing one by one almost the languages that you hear would have heard walking down the street in uh, Colonial Charleston. All right. Chaz, I hate to say it, but we've run out of time. Anything you'd like to add to our listeners before we sign off today? Uh, Just thanks to you uh, for having me on here and to them for having bought and read this book, enough of them, to make my publisher think, think this would be a good idea to put out a 25th anniversary edition. Well, Charles Joyner, Burroughs Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Coastal Carolina University, author of Down by the Riverside, and my longtime friend, thanks for being with us today on the Journal to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the publication of this fabulous book. My great pleasure. 
This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Charles Joyner as, as much as I did. Chaz is a wonderful, dear friend. It's his 25th anniversary, the anniversary of the publication of Down by the Riverside, a South Carolina slave community. But he was also one of the first guests we had on the show when Walter Edgar's Journal was still a live production. And our conversation kind of went all over the place today. We talked about his books, his works, uh, but we also talked about the origins of something very special to a lot of South Carolinians, and that is beach music and the shag. But then when you have a conversation with a friend, it's almost like sitting down at the kitchen table and having a cup of coffee. And I feel that comfortable with Chaz, and I think he did with me. And I hope your listening in to our conversation was entertaining as well as enlightening. This is Walter Edgar. Today's program has been an encore of my 2010 conversation with Dr. Charles Joyner, former Burroughs Distinguished Chair in Southern History and Culture at Coastal Carolina, about his book, Down by the Riverside, A South Carolina Slave Community. This rebroadcast is part of our continuing series celebrating Walter Edgar's Journal at 21. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio. 